0: Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 109. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast to feature interviews about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. This is the first episode of 2022. The first episode since the conclusion of the 10-year anniversary all-year-long 2021 Black Album Celebrations, and since the pair of Metallica headlining shows in San Francisco, celebrating the band's 40th anniversary. Since we've been on the subject of Metallica anniversaries, it got me thinking about the fact that it's now been five years since I started the kind of early pre-production process of conceiving and putting together Speaking Destroy. And it will be five years officially since the first episode dropped, here in a few months so perhaps i'll do something related to that what do y'all think i don't know let me know remember the best way you can help support this podcast is to become a supporter on patreon shout out to all the patrons who have been loyally sticking it out i very much appreciate it and to leave a five star rating and write a nice little review on apple podcasts i got a lot of great feedback For the host solo take one episode that I released shortly before the San Francisco shows. I really appreciate hearing about that from everyone. And it is great encouragement for me to do more episodes like that in the future. Going to stick with the interview format. That's kind of my niche. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed doing that episode and uh, I will sprinkle a few of those in in the coming weeks and months. But this episode, my guest is Ben Apatoff. Ben Apatoff is a fellow music journalist. He's based in New York. He's also an educator, and his work has appeared in Metal Injection, Metal Sucks, and the Morbid Anatomy Museum, among other places. He was born the year Metallica released Kill Em All. And his book, Metallica, the 2495 book, came out in August of last year. The book's description on Amazon says that Metallica, the $24.95 book, features an in-depth look at Metallica's cultural significance, with chapters devoted to each member, each album, touring, fashion, books, film, influences, fandom, and more, exploring the band's ideologies along the way. So this is, while he's very much a Metallica fan, obviously, and is written with that sort of voice and from that perspective, this is also kind of an almost academic approach in the sense that he really examines the band's impact and turns over a lot of things that are maybe less explored despite how massive this band is. And of course it has a super cool title. We get into the conversation about the genesis of the book, uh, what makes it different from the other Metallica books that are out there, putting it together, the research involved, all the interviews and everything he combed through. We also take a nice little detour into some speculation and discussion of James Hetfield's uh, relationship to religion and life's big questions, almost kind of spilling over into my other podcast, No Price From God, for a moment. Uh, very cool stuff. Very great conversation. I hope you dig it. You can grab Ben's book on Amazon and wherever else you find books. Remember, you can follow me at Ryan Downey on Twitter, at Ryan J. Downey underscore on Instagram. Instagram. You can follow Speak and Destroy on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, all those places. So here it is, my conversation with Ben Apatoff. This is Speak and Destroy. So, Ben, what was that question you just asked me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did you think about San Francisco? Happy New Year. Um, It was killer. You know, one of my predictions going into it, or ideas about it, or however you want to phrase it, was given the volume of tricks up their sleeves and treats and guests that they pulled out for the 30th anniversary... I just didn't see any topping that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even even without the pandemic causing a lot of logistical hurdles there. I mean, they did four nights in 2011 with every guest imaginable, you know, a, a lot of whom I've had on the podcast since then, like Animal from Anti-Nowhere League and Brian Tatler from Diamond mm-hmm. and uh, and they did, you know, like every song imaginable <laughs> across yeah. those those few days. So Mm -hmm. I knew this would be different in that sense. Um, I don't know that, you know, even just in terms of the ex-members of the 30th anniversary. I mean, we had Dave Mustaine for the first time. Right. uh, Barring the uh, big four jams, which I don't think really count in quite the same way. We had Jason Newstead, of course, Ron McGovney, Hugh Tanner, Lloyd Grant, like anybody like tangentially related to that lineup who was alive, (laughs) was on stage. And I thought... If, if there were any guests this, at, at the 40th, maybe Newstead because of the Black Album celebratory stuff. But then I also thought, you know what? They've been celebrating the Black Album all year in all sorts of ways and configurations. And they've been playing really Black Album heavy sets mm-hmm. at the festival. So I had some intel. And as soon as I heard that they definitely weren't doing the same festival sets, that's when I was like, okay, they're going to do something cool. There probably won't be any guests, and it turned out there weren't any. Right. And yeah, it was really cool what they chose to do instead. They did something from every record uh, in chronological order. The first night, they started with Kill All and went all the way through Hardwired. The second night, they started with Hardwired and went all the way back to Kill All. Right. And uh, it was killer. And then somewhere in there, I would certainly include the show from The Wedding Band, which happened after the first show on Friday night at the Fillmore, oddly enough, the same venue where the 30th shows had been. And the wedding band, for people listening who might not know, that's a cover band featuring Kirk and Rob. And in this configuration, John Theodore from Queens of the Stone Age and Mars Volta on drums. My buddy and multiple Speaking Destroy guests. uh, Three Pete, maybe coming up on four. Uh, Doc Coyle from Bad Wolves and God Forbid plays guitar Whitfield crane from ugly Kid Joe sings and Mark from Death Angel also sings and then there's like some trumpet players and whatever but it's a mix of uh you know some hard rock and metal standards DC uh, I, I would say Judas priest but I think some of the priest stuff they do is like songs that priest covered in the priest style but then a lot of funk like tons and tons of, of funk music from the 70s and uh, that was really cool, man. They they played until three in the morning. They went on at 1 a.m., played for like an hour, took a very short intermission, came back and played for another hour. And yeah, it was cool, man. And it was, it was great to see people, um, you know, got to hang out with my buddy, Andrew, who's also been on the podcast quite a bit. Uh, he, he and I went up there with our friend, Eric, and we got to hang out with Eric's brother, who, who was gracious enough to let us stay with him and his wife and his awesome kids. And uh, yeah, we just had a really great time. The whole uh, trip, the whole experience was super cool.
1: Yeah, it was a it was a great experience. I um I wish I'd caught the wedding band. I heard that was awesome. And um and yeah, I just love the weekend being filled up. I mean, I remember on the way back, you saw the airport was just filled with people with Metallica shirts. And uh, yes, yes, yeah, um yeah, the shows were awesome. I really didn't know. I didn't have any intel about what to um expect. I was wondering if they're going to bring out Newstead or Mustaine or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um. Yeah, well, I met up with the, uh, the Somewhere in Time podcast guys while I was there. And one of them pointed out to me that on the first night they played, they started with the first song that they, the first song, on the first record, and ended with the last song, on the last record. And, you know, ah, from here to like, just spit out the bone. And I was like, oh, yeah. man, okay. Yeah. And I, um, but yeah, and about like, you know, a little after, you know, the first night around like Santerre, I was like, okay, they're playing the albums the whole way through. And yeah, that was did, great. And um, did, you know, they end, with, did they with, with end that? the second night with Whiplash? And the second night, I think, with Seek and Destroy, right? I think they went Whiplash, Seek and Destroy.
0: Okay, because I was just because to your friend's point, I, I was just thinking about how the second night they opened with the first song from from Hardwired. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, with a uh, with Hardwired, I was just like losing it. I mean, and kind of figuring that they're gonna play it, you know, back to uh back to the front after that. teasing Metallica. Yeah, no pun, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, exactly right.
0: Uh, yeah, and as you mentioned about. The airports, man, it was really cool. That was something that I remember when Andrew and I went up to SNM2 at that same venue a couple of years ago. You know, as you were on the train and the bus and everything yeah. in getting close, you started seeing more and more Metallica shirts.
1: Yeah. And yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, flying home Monday, SFO was just packed with Metallica shirts. Oh. And something happened to me there that has never happened to me before. It was the, it was the first time
1: mm-hmm. I was waiting
0: in the security line. And the guy behind me says, are you Ryan J. Downing? Oh, wow. And I, turned around, I said, yes. And he said, I'm a big fan of speaking destroy. And uh, it was a Metallica fan in town for the shows from Moscow. And wow. uh, I got to chat with him a little bit while in the security line. And it was like, yeah, I have. That was the first time I've been recognized from
1: the podcast. Oh, okay. I
0: suppose if, if ever there were a place in time for that to happen, it would be there.
1: Right. It is just such a great like sense of community. I mean, you know, there's something just special with people who are like that into the band. I remember like seeing people in church and they'd cheer when they'd see you and just at, like the yeah like black and brunch and stuff like that. It was just uh, yeah. it was a really great kind of communal weekend.
0: There was a guy who, uh, uh, one of the nights I was wearing, my buddy Dave Peters got me this really cool sweatshirt that's Yoda over the Master of Puppets crosses and it says Metallica. <laughs> And I I call it my pastor of Muppets sweatshirt. (laughs) But there was a guy in a Metallica shirt with some other Muppet on it. I forget which one. Hmm. And like his friends ran over to my friends to like point (laughs) out (laughs) <laughs> the two of us are like shirt continuity and it's like moments like that were just i mean oh yeah so awesome
1: man yeah there were uh there were some really great shirts i saw like you know a bunch of like funny christmas themed ones and some really old ones from like live shit binge and purge and stuff like that it was yeah uh, it was great just like uh just like fan watching experience i could just like i mean i obviously wanted to see the show but i could just like sat there for hours watching like the different metallica fans and their different like Obsessions in different ways. It was uh, it was great. Yeah,
0: for sure, man. A lot of awesome people watching from the uh, Metallica fan perspective. If nothing else, like you said. Definitely. Yeah. And it was interesting. I, I don't know how how much people have talked about this since, but one of the nights, I think the second one, there was a fire alarm that went off right before. Yeah. The- oh yeah. That's well. obviously scary in a big venue like that. All the lights come on and there's this message telling you to leave, but no one was leaving, including the staff. Yeah. So kind of like and thankfully whatever it was they figured it out without having to
1: evacuate but yeah i was worried about that because also right before the show is supposed to be you know it's like five minutes before the show is supposed to start and i was like oh no are they gonna like do this and then you have to go to the curfew and but it was yeah thankfully got cleared up i don't know what happened but um
0: yeah and for a moment i thought oh is this like a cunning stunts type thing oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: they they destroy the set and uh yeah all that yeah. yeah And yeah.
0: I I also got to see one of my old dear friends uh, Robert Mancini who uh, was one of my bosses once upon a time at MTV oh.
1: almost twenty I know, years I ago. That's right near an MTV guy,
0: yeah. Yeah, I hadn't seen him in person in a long time, and uh, he was there with Alex Coletti, the guy who created MTV Unplugged. Um, oh got, wow! I got a chance to thank him for Alice in Chains Unplugged, but they oh, yeah. uh, they and and their team had worked on a bunch of the video stuff that played in between the songs. Uh, mostly the documentary stuff the stuff like the interviews with fans and and all that sort of stuff and and the kind of the historical thing the one that was read by Jason Moma and the one that was read by Tom Morello like they did those so it was just cool to be there and see those dudes and um get to see some of their work and feel like you know I knew somebody who knew somebody (laughs) that's awesome. nice yeah yeah it's
1: uh yeah I was was wondering if you were like gonna see there like people from you know different parts of the metal world and Yeah, but it was a yeah, it turned out really well, you know. It's it's funny. I went with um, I went with my partner and her sister and brother in law, Uh and they're not like they're definitely not like me level fans of people who like you know, like the hits and stuff like that. And I was kind of looking over, like, you know, are they gonna be like, is this is this gonna be too like deep cut for them? But I thought they did a really good job of making sure that like both diehards and casual fans could like. And, you know, they'll play like Fixer and they'll play like, you know, Trapped Under Ice and stuff like that. But it was... a uh...
0: Fixer was insane. I mean, first
1: insane, of all, right? it's one of my favorite songs from that era. I think it's a lot of people's favorite songs from yeah. my- those mm-hmm. of us who appreciate it. And the fact
0: that it had never been played live is just
1: yeah, incredible. They've only played... I remember I was I was doing research, I found they'd only played... They'd have not played... Um, they played less than half of Reload live until they'd only played six Reload songs until... That weekend. And then the wow. But they really have not played a lot of that uh, lot of Life. But uh, yeah, Fixer I was is like, are they really going to get with like this? And it was, it was great. I had a, had a great time.
0: Um, well, speaking of 40 years of Metallica and Kill Em All being, figuring heavily into the set, mm-hmm. I, I love that in your personal bio, it mentions that you were born the same year Kill Em All came out. And my, my buddy Stavros from the Atlas Moth was on uh, several episodes ago. Mm-hmm. and uh, he shares a birthday with cliff burton oh wow <laughs> so yeah, uh-huh. you know, i always i love when we can all sort of tie our uh yeah. you know my last name's downey and headfield went to high school in downey california oh that's right yeah downey high yeah. school yeah yeah, yeah that's it's right. like any way we
1: can like tie ourselves into the history oh totally. Um, yeah yeah, yeah, so yeah. the cliff birthday funny cliff connection was um you know I was struggling with like the book coming out and i got a uh a publicist recommended to me and i'm like you know okay is this going to be cool so i Listening to her talk, she's a Metallica fan. She's done some stuff I like. I'm like, okay, sounds good. And then I don't know why she didn't say this at the start. At the end, she says, by the way, Cliff is my favorite. And my son's middle name is Orion. I was like, dude, wow. no way. Wow. <laughs> you named your kid for, for Orion. So uh, yeah, it was great to be. Yeah, uh, you know, it was like, definitely, we'll, we'll work with you then. But uh, you're, like,
0: you're like, yeah, you're the right person
1: for this book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. She was just like, yeah. we all gathered around MTV to watch the one premiere. I was like, a old school fans. So it was a lot of fun.
0: So tell me a bit about your background prior to discovering Metallica, you know, what sort of music was around the house or, you know, when um, you connected to it and you knew that it was more than just something you liked.
1: Well, you know, I, uh, I grew up with, um, older parents who were into, you know, the kind of stuff that parents like, like, you know, the Beatles and my dad loved Bob Dylan. And I got to him with my dad and then, um, I got really into '90s rock radio. I was a '90s kid, so I uh, um, so I got into like the Black Album hits and Load and Reload were coming out. So I got into Metallica that way. Although weirdly enough, um, my first Metallica CD was Kill 'Em All because I did have a lot of ways of buying music, and there was a used CD store, and I found Kill 'Em All in the five dollar section. And you know, as a as a big nerd, I loved reading about music. I knew Metallica was, yeah. you know, I, they had songs I liked. and knew that they were heavy and scary and those are things i was interested in so i got Kill 'Em all and um and i was also too young to understand why somebody who might like Kill 'Em all might not like the black album <laughs> right because, you know I, I hadn't been introduced to that feeling of like you know you, you can't like my band yet or like my, my band is too popular so um yeah so like as i heard like you know Kill 'Em all and ride the lightning was my second record you know they had like um you know they were heavy they were catchy they had great lyrics they were fast they were you know therapeutic and cathartic and uh they had everything I wanted so I I loved all those records and I still did and um and uh they've grown on me over the years you know it it, it took a while for them to be like my my band you know I'd say but um it was more like uh you know I liked a lot of different music and I'd have different kind of like you know fads and trends and then like one day I kind of woke up I was like you know what this is the thing that's always here for me is Metallica and that's like you know these these are my guys and that's you know, I can sometimes get more into punk or industrial or classic rock or other things like that. But there's one day I was just like, you know, man, this is, this is here for me always. And so they've, uh, yeah, they're, um, obviously hugely important to me. So, uh, yeah, love, love Metallica. I,
0: I know exactly what you mean. I can, I can relate to that so well because I, you know, I started off into new wave and punk and then mm-hmm. discovered thrash and metal actually through Megadeth and then, you know, oh, yeah. Metallica and all the big four bands. And then, and then it was hardcore. And then, uh, you know, yeah, we all have kind of our, our eras, you know, I had 20 years ago, probably, probably right around the same time Lars was going through it. I went through my Britpop phase.
1: Oh, and, yeah, it's <laughs> great. Stuff. You know,
0: but yeah, it's, it's the same thing, just as you described, where you kind of realize at a certain point, like, man, Metallica has just been here with me through all of yeah. it. <laughs> no matter what else I've loved, it's just, it's consistently just part of my life.
1: Yeah, you know, um, one thing I said in my, my book reading, I came up with on the spot, but I've been thinking it. Of- makes sense ever since is that um other bands are like my crushes and metallica was like my life partner. you know i got gotten like yeah friends or fads where it'd be like you know like hardcore and yeah i love Britpop and stuff like that but you know metallica was like a you know like a down for life thing
0: for me our so, flings yeah yeah exactly right yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean hip-hop's been a big part of my life but yeah it's no, just, okay, metallica it's is definitely kind of this like you know, unifier for sure. So where does, uh, and we'll get back to Metallica, obviously, um, where does music journalism enter into the equation?
1: You know, um, I guess I've always kind of liked writing and I mean, I've always, I've always liked writing, but I, um, for a while, I just wasn't seeing, um, writing about the kind of uh music that i wanted to see written about you know even like you know, i loved reading rolling stone and spinning growing up and i was like you know there's not like enough coverage about you know the the metal bands i liked and i started a blog that i like never update anymore called Appetite for destruction which is you know you can tell like rock themes so i worked on that and then i started reaching out i worked at um at mlb.com for a while in the baseball entertainment division so it was mm-hmm. like books and music related to baseball and um they basically you know that company had a lot of money basically sat me at a computer all day doing nothing so i would like send out stuff to metal injection or metal socks and be like hey you want to read this and got some stuff out that way and um yeah just kind of kept it up but um but uh yeah this is felt like the right thing is like writing like books now is like uh just kind of you know picking a project and you're know, waking up on it every morning and working on that and that's yeah the thing that has, kind of feels like feels like the most me right now i'd say
0: i've been i've been gravitating towards that as well i had my first um you know co-authored book came out uh just a a little over a year ago and then my next one is coming out a few months after we're taping this Uh and yeah and i I mean i've always loved books magazines print media analog you know stuff you can hold in your hands nothing against the digital economy aside from all the pitfalls and not to say that i would abandon that but um yeah i'm 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 with you man i'm i'm kind of much more uh, gravitating towards longer form storytelling and things that people could put on their shelf and hang on to for a while, as opposed to a, you know, 500 word piece about Vince Neil falling and breaking his rib. Uh, You know what I mean? It's like this sort of uh, very quick transactional, transitory news cycle stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. I say that as someone who's a news reporter for a long time, but uh, yeah, I think I'm kind of maturing for lack of a better word, into more of this sort of uh, deeper focused uh,
1: storytelling. It, uh, it feels like the next step, you know, it feels like I, um, you know, there the are writers I like who I grew up reading their stuff in Spin and Rolling Stone and, you know, metal magazines. And then I see them in their 30s and 40s, start to write books. And now I kind of see myself in that position. I'm like, you know, this feels it feels right. right?
0: Yeah, totally. And I also feel like, you know, much as you said when you started writing in the first place, it's still a pretty underserved community. I mean when you think about how massively yeah. how, how massive Metallica is, you know I suppose you could say oh there's a lot of books about Metallica but relative to a lot of things that are equally as popular and beloved, I would say there's very few.
1: Yeah, I think that's true and um, you know there's more than I thought I mean like reading the book I started and I read every Metallica book that's out to you know put this one together but um, you know it, it, it's a cliche, but part of why I did this book truly is that um, I didn't really have the Metallica book that I wanted to read. And you know, there, there are books about you know, about you know, um, you know, I don't know, like, like the Stones and you know, bands like that that you know, kind of analyze them for their importance and aren't really like fact books and don't isn't just stuff you can look up on the internet, but um, yeah, but Metallica doesn't have so much of that, they've got like a few books kind of like that, but they don't have um. They didn't have the book that i wanted to read and i and you know for a band that as you said is that massively huge they deserve that kind of book and and uh yeah i kind of think that i mean part of why um people are so drawn to them is that the fact you know despite the fact that they're that huge they still feel kind of marginalized in some sort mm-hmm. of like critical realms and you yes. think like or, like, tokenized, you know, it's like, okay, this is going to be the, this and Sabbath will be the only bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Or, yeah, you know, and
0: tokenized also in the sense yeah. that, you know, I was at the Grammys where they performed with Lady Gaga and something yeah. about the dancers, oh. the like extras that they had cast <laughs> that were on stage and the yeah. Vern Cox forgetting, you know, right. omitting Metallica's, Metallica's name in the intro. That sort of stuff, like, was a reminder of, like, yeah, even when they let us in here it's still sort of like, uh,
1: you know, <clears in throat> this painted. Yeah, in well, um, you know, something I say in the book is that they're they're outsiders in the mainstream. You know, you think about other bands of their stature, other artists of their stature, they play the Super Bowl, they play the Academy Awards, they get invitations to play the White House and things like that. And we're pretty likely never going to see Metallica. I mean, who knows? They've been full surprises, right? But, um, but Metallica doesn't really get those kind of invites. And yeah. Um, it's a good you know, point. Where, you know we'll see like artists like Beyonce, you know, more. all will respect her. To do that, but um, yeah, no matter how big they get, they still have sort of like an outsider feeling to them, which is uh, I think part of their appeal.
0: Yeah, you know, as as you're saying that, it reminds me of uh, a buddy of mine who's who's one of my favorite film critics and and writes about pop culture quite a bit, and and is, seems to have a pretty dense knowledge about music. I saw him tweet once. Uh, I saw him tweet once that. Metallica or it was something along the lines of they're the dumbest band that thinks they're smart.
1: Oh, wow. And I was
0: just like, whoa, because it it was such a window into how they're seen in more esteemed circles, you know, yeah. and it's, and it's kind of like, man, I don't see them that way. I mean, I think Lars in particular is a very worldly intellectual. Uh, I mean, just when you look at his childhood, his background, and, and I think obviously Hepfield is, is very, Uh, intelligent especially emotionally intelligent I mean I don't need to defend their intelligence on my Metallica podcast but it it was just really kind of an insight into oh even people who have some respect for them and recognize their position in the pantheon that's how they see it
1: yeah a dumb band that thinks they're smart yeah you know um and you actually just reminded me um I remember there's there's a music podcast I love and they're talking about the best books based on songs, and one well, of the critics brought Metallica, who's got several books based on you know, like Giant God's Gun or From the Belt Holes. And the other critic says something like, Yeah, that's that books, but those are like high school boy books. And I was just like, right. dude, you know, like that's the, like you know the anthrax Stephen King book reports, Exactly, yeah. right? You know, yes, <laughs> anthrax, you know, Iron Maiden. Um yeah. Bob Dylan writes about Kerouac, that's fine, but that's also like that's like high school boy stuff, which is fine. I that's yeah. not there's not no judgmental um take on that but uh, that's so yeah. that's so
0: perfect it's such a that, that's the dismissiveness that comes no matter no matter the exactly article. yeah it's like Third it can't
1: surface. be um and you know i've yeah caught myself kind of thinking that too like is that like you know what, what do they think about this book but like doing research and getting deep into it i thought that their you know their interpretations of great books and movies are really smart and sharp and articulate Know a world. lot about lovecraft
0: considering they're still writing yeah. the cthulhu mythos in you know as recently as hardwired
1: yeah, totally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't um, know. Maybe Lovecraft is considered high school. <laughs> you know, he he. Uh, and I worry about some of the book too. Is that he um got canonized more in like his later years? Like it's it's hard for like sci fi and horror in particular to get yeah taken seriously by like the literature snobs. And like after like sixty years, people be like, oh, maybe Lovecraft is okay, or oh, maybe Stephen King. Like people were like losing their mind about like Stephen King being a trash writer, and then. You know, the people who grew up with them as kids, you know, grew up yeah. in serving literary criticism and uh, that's taken seriously now and it's- um, Yeah, the the yeah. people who grew
0: up with Star Wars, who now see, who see those as legitimate films.
1: Yeah, a good example. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. you know, it takes a while for those things to get um taken seriously as great. Yeah, it we've, canon- we've canonized
0: Ghostbusters, time. which was, you know, uh, exactly. <laughs> a raunchy yeah. SNL comedy. Yeah. In
1: yeah it's gay totally. for
0: adults at the time, probably.
1: Yeah. But, you know, and metal's like that, too. It takes a lot longer for metal to be canonized as, as great art. But, um, yeah, but yeah, it gets there. And, you know, the, the kids who grew up with it grew up and start writing the books about it. And that's the, uh, you know, and it's um gets taken more seriously as, a, as an art form. For sure.
0: Well, I know you uh, contextualized that as a cliche, but I, I do think I, I agree with you, I, you know, whether it's You know, make the film that you want to see, write the book that you want to read, start the band that you want to listen to. I mean, I think that is a real kind of universal truism with the best stuff that emerges from the creative arts. What was it about this book, the story you wanted to tell, the things you wanted to turn over and examine? What were some of the angles that you knew going into it that hadn't been overly examined that you know that were in the book that you wanted to read that didn't exist yet
1: um well, there's a lot but it's um you know I guess I was inspired by uh you know I, I've been saying in the press I was inspired by Rob Sheffield's book about the Beatles is like you know mm. okay how do you write about like the biggest thing in its genre and how do you do that and how do you make it like explore its cultural significance and what yeah. means to the world and and the questions that it raises you know not answering mm-hmm. them but like why you know one thing I say in the book is that Metallica is a permanent puzzle you know and that's why we go back to them it's like they're unsolvable and that's why mm-hmm. they they give us so much room for debate so much room for argument i want to kind of like explore some of that a bit but um but one thing you said uh kind of angles the thing that really sparked this idea like long ago was um something rob sheffield wrote in his book talking to girls about duran duran where he said and i'm going to paraphrase but he said um for years there have been bands who who stylize themselves as the sort of like badass alternative to the Beatles, whether it's like the Stones or the Led Zeppelin or the Sex Pistols, like we're heavier, we're meaner, we're tougher, we're cooler, we're we're faster, we're better than the Beatles.
0: Mm-hmm. And yet,
1: none of those bands piss people off as much as the Beatles do. <laughs> and I read that and I thought, that's Metallica. You know, for all my life I hear like, you know, we're Slayer, we're Pantera, we're, Meg- we're Black Metal, we're Death Metal, we're heavier, we're meaner, we're more underground Metallica are posers, you know. And none of those bands piss people off as much as Metallica does. And I was like, "That's what I want to write about." So, um, and I want to explore it from that angle. You know, I mean, like you and I were talking about people don't take them intellectually seriously. I want to write about the books and movies that they write about. I um, I want to write about uh, their um, their fandom. I want to write about uh, the individual guys and you know, you know what they mean to the band. I want to write about I, this wasn't in the pitch originally. I started writing about their fashion, you know, because they, they changed the world so much that's the kind of thing we take for granted now. But you look at all these older Metallica interviews, and one thing that often comes up is, you know, like, are your costumes, you know, right? Metal, band, metal right. bands wear costumes, right? Like, you're, right. you're not Kiss, you're not Iron Maiden, like even Motorhead has bullet belts or like leather studs. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You're not a metal band, you know, or even like punk. Punk has costumes too. They've got like dyed hair and stuff. But you know, Metallica does. One thing I say in the book is that they're they're by far the biggest band from their era that has no members who could be turned into a Halloween costume. You know, we don't have a defined idea of what like, what James or Lars or Kirk dressed like the way that we do for like Axel or Kirk Cobain or someone like that or Courtney Love or Bono. Yeah, they
0: really started that idea that, you know, I think that was a big part of breaking down the barrier between band and audience that really came uh from, not just punk because punk was very theatrical in in most corners. But really, something that I think came more from like hardcore punk. Uh, yeah. This idea that um, there's no separate. It, this could be you. You know, you could be us. We could be you. It, it's could be interchangeable. Life, right? Yeah. So we're, our band could be your life. Yeah. We're uh,
1: mm-hmm. we're
0: up here dressed. We look like you. We talk like you. We sound like you. We act like you. We're not a, we're not rock gods. You know, proclaiming yeah. you know, proclaiming anything and. You know, carrying around swords and stuff, and, and and not to say that that stuff doesn't have its place, but oh, totally, yeah, is, yeah. to your point, that is something that they really uh, originated in, popularized in popular culture. Yeah.
1: and I don't uh, know that we
0: could have a Pearl Jam or Nirvana if we hadn't had a Metallica.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and um, you see how they're able to thrive in that era, you know, with um, with that notion. Yeah. You know, one thing I um I think it's on the Kill em All box set is and where they're sh- they're like. I think it's at the Keystone they play in early 80s show it's Halloween and uh James says hey look at all the kings here because their fans are dressed up like King Diamond in the mm-hmm. audience. and I think it's so and he's like okay well the song is for you and you know and uh that's great And it's also they're more interested in dressing up like king kids who want to see King Diamond than dressing up like King Diamond you know they're interested in you know um yeah I think that the fashion is an important part of it which I have not seen explored in um in Metallica books before but uh yeah, I guess, there, you know, there are a lot of different things I wanted to, I want to write some history I wanted to write about, you know, I mean, uh, this is horribly pretentious, so forgive me, but I was thinking it'd be like kind of like a Moby Dick of Metallica books where there's like the story <laughs> chapters, yeah, philosophy chapters, the character chapters, the sort of like, you know, you know, the, the history chapters. So I, I just wanted like a wide ranging thing of Metallica, of uh, Metallica ideas.
0: And... And getting even more granular into that, this is something I was really excited to talk to you about in relation to your book. I I don't know if if you're aware of this uh, or if everyone listening to this, how much they're aware of it or not, but I also do uh, intermittently a sister podcast uh, called no prize from God. And that podcast, I describe it as conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief and everything between Mm -hmm. the idea being that, you know, when you look at the, religion and spirituality category and apple podcasts you're predominantly seeing new agey self-help stuff right-wing evangelicalism uh you know and uh, militant atheism you know your sam harris's and so on right and that was really kind of it and to uh, borrow the phrase back from you i wanted to make the podcast that i wanted to hear which was where is there a space that You know, HR from the Bad Brains can talk about his spiritual trip. You know, where can we hear from Vic Daikara from Inside Out and 108 about his whole journey through Krishna consciousness? And, Mm -hmm. And not, I'm not interested in, and this is something I realized very early on in doing it. I'm not interested in having somebody come on and promote orthodoxy. Like I'm not looking for a spokesperson from a particular denomination or faith to come and give me the bullet points of, of the broad strokes of what the, that faith is about. What I'm looking for are creative people, musicians, filmmakers, poets, playwrights, whatever, uh, talking about the unique role that life's big questions plays in their work. And in there, they could be adherents to, you know, the main line of some tradition. Uh, but I want to hear, I want to hear about them and how it affects them. So, I'm introducing this. You probably already see where I'm going with it as far as your book goes. But I had Miles Kennedy on No Prize from God at one point. And Miles Kennedy was, like James Hetfield, raised in the Christian science tradition. And like James Hetfield, like myself, had a parent pass away young. And I'm sure he would forgive me for tell, recapping this story here since we did talk about it on the podcast. But essentially, you know, he had a parent who had appendicitis and because of the strict uh, prohibition against medicine, you know, what would have been, I mean, I had appendicitis once, I had my appendix taken out, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of just going to do that, like, you know, he uh, stayed in bed at home and died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in talking about that with Miles, we talked obviously a lot about how losing a parent so young and about the Christian science trip, how all of that, figures into the art that he's created as a musician ever since. And I asked him during that interview, I was like, man, have you ever talked to James Hetfield about this? (laughs) And I believe he said that they had met, but he, you know, he doesn't have like a relationship with him necessarily. And I know Hetfield did that absentee father's documentary and and he's been fairly open about this stuff as open as he is about anything, but I really liked that you took an interest in that side of him. And I, I saw an interview with, with you where you mentioned nick cave Sinead o'connor like those are i mean i you know the, the blog that i do that accompanies the no price from god podcast i'm quoting nick cave all the time because he's like yeah. kind of the right. if the, if there's a musician out there where i'm like almost totally yeah. logically in sync with it's it's maybe him Love in terms me. of like his commentary on religion
1: and and, and stuff My like heart that fan. yeah for sure
0: so yeah so uh, with that big preamble for context uh yeah talk to me about kind of if you wouldn't mind your relation to this stuff a little bit and how that led to
1: unpacking it uh in ways that we haven't really seen well um i forget if that was in my original pitch. i remember that one coming up more and more while i wrote more about it and seeing um there is a lot of, you know, like, you know, we mentioned I spoke about uh, you know Nick Cave and Sinead O'Connor and there are artists who, you know, Flannery O'Connor as an author, um, there are artists who came up with sort of a spiritually abusive upbringing and rebelled against it the way that James Hetfield did and, and the way that, you know, Kirk Hammett did in many ways, but also used the sort of poetic and literary aspects of that in and, their Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine, yeah, great example. Oh, Dave Mustaine, yeah. Yeah, but you see how, you know, like the Four Horsemen and, you know, the plagues and, you know, there, there's so many. And The God That Failed, you know, that's a very powerful song. And there's um, yeah. and uh, I think that, you know, he, you know, they're um, I'd say their antitheism is not like a celebration. It's not like if you know, there's a black melting, like we hate God, God is dead. And uh, that's fine. I mean, I, I love that stuff, too. But it's um, but Metallica has a more um, a more open kind of interesting and like, you know, more open ended take on it where yeah. they you know they they use the sort of you know poetic aspects of it they're not afraid to investigate the story like there's hardcore you know disgusting brutal stuff in you know the bible and in religion that they get into and um and uh you know what was, what, oh yeah. Well, yeah one of the most interesting books I read while I was researching this one was the day Metallica came to church which was um by pastor John Van Sloten um, most of the Metallica stuff is in the first chapter but it's um Basically, he's a pastor who does um popular culture sermons. Mm. So like you know, Batman or about you know the Cohen brothers and stuff like that. And uh the book is called that because one of his, I guess, congregants said um said, Hey, you know, he's a teenager, like, you know, hey, you know, I hear you talk about you know u two and stuff like that. I was if you talk about my favorite thing. And he's like, Well, what's your favorite thing? My favorite thing's Metallica, and he's like, Oh no, what am I gonna say about Metallica? I, I hate metal, but you know, to his credit, he um and he read Creeping Death's lyrics, and he was like, "Wait a second. Right? Yeah, he read he read all their lyrics. He went to a show of theirs wow. in, up in Canada, and um he came up with, and I guess Lars ended up reaching out to him, which is, uh, I mean, it's not a spoiler. It's like you know that on the front of the book, but it's um, but um, and he came up with like a pretty profound um reading about why it's okay to be angry at God and how Metallica expresses that and how you can do that. And it was, I, I was very touched. And even if I, it's not like my personal, um, my personal religion or belief, I was very touched by that book. And I, um, I was like, you know, this is something that there, there is a lot of this in James's lyrics. And I, um, and, uh, you know, something a lot of people are afraid to address. And, you know, and also like I wrote about how he, um, how, uh, you know, James said he believed in a higher power and people were like, oh my God, is he, is he just like, turned Christian now is he like born again is he what but you know and that comes from his um from his 12-step program and that's something that a lot of people and you know it's, he says sometimes I see it in my wife sometimes it's Cliff sometimes it's you know my my parents coming back to me and but um there's it's such an exciting interesting story I think a lot of people are afraid of because they're like you know oh, Christianity is bad or like oh like but it's um and I, I relate to that too but I, I think you can explore it from like a non like fundamentalist um Aaron, just like find a lot of a uh, depth in the way that Metallica does that, which I was excited to read about and, and write well, about.
0: Well said. I remember kind of post-recovery Hetfield when he was getting more into getting tattooed and stuff like that. I, I remember my uh, sort of perking up when I saw that he had, you know, praying hands and like, like he's been getting religious iconography. I think he had faith in the Ford logo <laughs> yeah, the with Ford logo, logo right. and wings and yeah, a lot of yeah. uh clues, if you wanted to kind of parse it. Uh, I, I never got this sense that he was a born again or a uh, a Bible thumper or any kind of, yeah. uh, I, I can't imagine a fundamentalism in his future, given his background. Yeah, but yeah, as you said, uh, in recovery, and I've, I've had a lot of family members in recovery, mm-hmm. the, the sort of mainline, what we associate with the 12-step programs anyway, there's certainly totally secular recovery programs out there and treatment programs. But the the big ones AA, A and A S A all of those yeah they put a higher power right in the middle of it even if you've decided that your higher power is going to be you know this box that my AirPods came in oh yeah you know but it's but you got to have something right you gotta like, have something right yeah in there for that for that stuff to work or so they say and uh, yeah, yeah it's it, it's interesting to you know my my read on religion politics, any of those hot-button provocative issues when it comes to musicians, artists, celebrities, Mm -hmm. what have you, I don't think that because someone creates art or entertains, quote-unquote, in any way, I don't think that they have an obligation to us as the audience to fill us in on where they stand with that stuff. I only, my only caveat to that is I think that if you have made that a part of your platform in the past, and that is a big part of your art, and those views should change, as views often do, hopefully do, uh, throughout life, then you have an obligation to maybe let your audience know. For example, if Rage Against the Machine became you know, MAGA Trumpers tomorrow, right. I think they would have an obligation because they had made their political platform such an integral part of their whole thing. I think right. they'd have an obligation to tell their audience, hey, this is where we stand now. Uh, I. I draw a similar comparison to a lot of the uh, christian metal bands
1: mm-hmm.
0: i don't think i don't think it's just because you're in a christian metal band means that you owe anyone an explanation or a detailed summary of your personal worldview but if you go out there uh projecting that positioning that and sort of utilizing that as part of your overall platform and your thing and you know that i, I mean and i i've known personally of I, I knew of a band, for example, I'll bring up one one specific example that had one Christian in the band and, you know, uh, four non-Christians in the band. And they're still regularly invited to play Christian festivals and they show up and play. And it's like, I feel like, I, can, I there's just a few of those bands. And I feel like there is a dishonesty there when there's kind of lying by omission. But yeah. all of which is a long-winded way of saying, you know, Hetfield never... Put himself out there as this, like, you know, destructive force against Christianity. Uh yeah. you know, wh- one could argue that Slayer did that. Um, and then you find out that Tom's a Catholic.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know. But uh yeah, so I don't think <inaudible> owes it to the audience to kind of tell us where he's coming from. This is just more sort of as people who have been so affected by his art and his personage. I think this is more just kind of a uh a well-intended curiosity where it's just like yeah I'd love to know what his whole trip is you know
1: yeah and I, I think he expresses that well and you you know can read interviews with the way he explores it and he says you know you like his tattoos that you talked about or you know you remind me he's got another one of St. Michael from uh from Paradise Lost who uh you know just like the you know ambiguity of the fight between God and the devil and that and uh yeah. you know I think he um you know I I've, yeah I don't see him as like a Preachy guy for or against it, but I see him as someone who uh, has quite and you know, he says in interviews, like I don't come here with the answers. I come here with a question and hmm. you know, that's a higher part of me. He, he says that's a higher part of me. He's like is you know, just exploring that question together. And I um and I appreciate that. I love that um that they do that in their music and raise those questions and give us so much room to argue and think and uh, and yeah. you know, oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So in researching this book, you know, you mentioned that you read every every book out there, I'm sure countless interviews. Yeah. Did you notice any sort of through lines or commonalities or, Um, you know, you you know, where where you can almost sort of, I mean, I know with different artists that I'm interested in, when I I read a lot of their stuff, I can almost, I can almost fill in the blank with some of their answers to some questions. You know, And I'm not talking about like a canned press cycle, you know, mm-hmm. talking points about a movie or something, but but just more sort of you kind of start to get really get a sense of somebody. The more time you spend parsing through that stuff, were there wow. things that started to stand out
1: to you about the different guys that maybe you hadn't yeah. thought about before you started researching? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, like stuff like the like the fashion thing, where you know I saw it coming up in the interviews, like oh, I guess that's something that we don't really think about now, but that's um, or also like um, I realizing that they. Um, that really at, at the start of their career, hundred percent of the world's best metal bands were English, and I hadn't really stopped thinking of that before. Because I now think like, yeah, great American metal bands, right? And the, um, and the way that I started thinking them more as like a uh an American metal band, the way they like explore that, that idea of being American, and that um, I guess by reading all the interviews too, I saw that they're all they all have personalities and they're all um not quite as much like that personality as a lot of the fans think mm. you know, like reading reading James interviews and Laura's interviews I thought of I'm gonna butcher this quote but Mark Twain has a quote about how like if a dog was a, if dogs and cats were people the dog would always say too much and the cat would never say um a word too much you know but it's um and you know James is more taciturn and Lars is, is very talky but uh But yeah, reading the interviews, I saw that they were also a little more, they they're they're a little uh, more complicated than the stereotype a lot to that too. Or like that Lars is the businessman and that James is the artist or that. Right. Yeah, they're all, um, I guess that's the the thing I would say of reading a lot of interviews, if that's a a long-winded way to do it. But they're all a lot more complicated than the sort of like rock star idea of them. You know, there's yeah. there's an idea that James but like like all of us as people, one would hope, right? Because uh, because yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: as you said, there are kind of those archetypes that we identify. Yeah. Them as kind of the Mount Rushmore and the band. but by the same turn, you know, when you look at Lars's immersion, fascination, expertise on art, film,
1: exactly. and
0: and exactly. certainly in his role in arranging the songs of Metallica, certainly he's not just a business guy. You know, he's very much a creative person. And then alternately with Hetfield, uh, you know, I mean, he drew that logo. You know, yeah. that's oh, there yeah. with ACDC and Ni- the Nike swoosh and any number of icon- oh, yeah. <laughs> iconic, uh, instantly recognizable uh, yeah, symbols and type. That's order. marketing. That's business, you know?
1: Totally, yeah. No, I'd say that he's much more business smart than he gets credit for and Lars is much more artistic. You know, he's got more songwriting contributions than I previously thought. Um, I bring in other drummers talking about his... Um, the way he kind of like composes the song inside the song has very mm. kind of like song-driven, song-driven yeah. drumming. And, you know, um yeah. I've a had a lot
0: of amazing rock and metal drummers on this podcast who all sing oh, his yeah. songs, you know, and that's, you uh, know, it it's always a delight to me because you get a lot of kind of casual naysayers who are like, oh, there's just drumming. Eh. Yeah. And I'm like, really, man? Because Mike Portnoy and Igor Cavalera and a whole bunch of other that's like awesome. Miller, you know, um, yeah, Dave Lombardo. Like all, a lot yeah. of people have been on the podcast <laughs> talking yeah, about.
1: Know, so, something I said about that in the book yeah. is that, um, is that uh, people who criticize Lars drumming are usually the same people who will say that Kurt Cobain's a bad guitarist or that Dave Lee Roth can't sing. You know, it's right. like it might not be technically like you know some guy who went to the Brooklyn School of Music, but. You know that has a feel. It's got a chemistry. It's got something that someone you know who's more technical might not have. You know, and uh, yeah. I think yeah, yeah, you know, James has that great quote where you know they're like you know years ago he said Lars wasn't a good drummer and he says you know he'll admit that and I'm not a good singer but something happens when we play together and yeah. you know I, mean, I disagree. I think they're good drummers and good singers too for sure. But um, but no, uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, and and you can have uh.
0: Ten times the technique as a guitar player of Kirk Cobain, but you know, zero percent of the songwriting prowess. And, and a you know, and different ways you play. Play. or you know, there are technically more accomplished metal lead players than Kirk. But do those lead players have his feel? Do they have his construction? And and Lars is a big part of that because when you see the behind-the-scenes stuff, you see Lars literally like humming, you know, guitar solo parts to Kirk, you know, Absolutely, writing, composing yeah. guitar solos.
1: Yeah, you know, I remember like like 20 years ago, um, Dream Theater, and this is no means of just a Dream Theater, obviously important and great musicians, but they recorded, uh, they played Master Puppets Run to Back Live, mm-hmm. and yeah, it sounds great. It's also not Metallica, it's not, and I think oh. the Dream Theater guys would say this, they like, you know, yeah, we can play, we can play the shit out of these songs, but they don't embody them the way that they, that Metallica does, and, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they really do play with, uh, with a chemistry with a, that, um, that almost no other band has.
0: And that's an interesting thing that Portnoy actually pointed out on the podcast, bringing us all the way back for, full circle to the 30th anniversary shows. Yeah. For all of the multitude, the plethora of guitar players, bass players, singers, string players, horn players, all these guests over those four nights, not one single guest drummer. Lars was behind the kit for every oh, single song. That's interesting. And, uh, you know, yeah, for all the different things, I hadn't thought about it until Portnoy pointed it out. And of all the different things there are to sort of wonder about and, and ponder there, I think the biggest thing that it says is just how important his style of drumming is to how those songs sound.
1: Yeah, You know,
0: where you can put a different bass player up there, you can put a different lead player, even a different rhythm player,
1: mm-hmm. as long as
0: Hetfield's still there, too and uh it's still going to sound like what we recognize but a different drummer may may just not sound the same at all
1: yeah um you know he's got like a he's got you know air drawing moments as he says with like phil rudd or charlie watts he's got a lot of that he's got um he's got a lot of you know um a lot of endurance he's got you know i saw with james where he said that uh Lars was always nervous. He wanted to play faster because he was like nervous on stage. Like, oh well, we got to play, we can't win battle. We're going to play faster and keep up. Right. And that's, you know, that's the sound of kill them all. And that's, uh, Mm -hmm. he's such an important part of that. And, you know, people can say like, well, he's just the business guy. He's like the Mike Love of Metallica. And I I disagree. I think that he, he does bring a lot to it artistically for sure.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm also reminded of when the one show that, that Lars missed, the download festival, yes. where Dave Lombardo filled in, Lars' drum tech filled in, and of course the late great Joey Jordison filled in, and Joey just absolutely destroyed it. I mean, it was just so
1: good, so good. They sounded so good. It was so awesome. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same, that's right, yeah. And uh, you know, you saw the other guys say like, you know, Dave Lombardo and Joey Dresson, like what an honor, what a great, like, you know, this is just like the most intense thing I've been is playing in Metallica. But um, but yeah, it's not he, um, they need Lars. And you know, I mean, PC people joke like, oh, Metallica would be better without him. It's like, they wouldn't be Metallica without him. They would not no, be. Uh, in, in a
0: hundred different ways they wouldn't be.
1: Absolutely not, yeah. Yeah, one right. of my favorite
0: Metallica moments ever is when they were being inducted mm-hmm. into the Rock Hall of Fame. And James goes over and thanks Lars and and picks him up off the ground. And just, it, it, just that little moment just says so much about both of those guys. And yeah. you know, as much as made about their oil and water and and you know, uh, you know, the, the Lennon McCartney of Metallica, something I'm reminded of watching the Beatles documentary, the Peter Jackson thing oh, that was Jackson. out recently, which is the the dissolution of the Beatles. Something I'm reminded watching that is like. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were best friends. We tend to just think about, you know, the rough patches and the, and the distracts and the, uh, you know, the hard times and, and the kind of oil and water part of their partnership, but they're best friends. And that's something that I think gets lost about James and Lars sometimes is like they're, you know, insufferably inseparable
1: (laughs) yeah they have a they have a very deep connection that um you know gets and i think that they have like a like almost like a like a really you know friend attraction and like a need for each other that um you know that james uh james replaced his family with that band you know uh, yeah yeah it's like this is this is my new family and i need and it's um and uh, yeah, there's so uh, there's so much going on there. Right? I thought about writing the book about how like you know they both have such strange relationships with their fathers, and you know mm-hmm. Lars is trying to impress his like you know his, his artistic dad, and you know James is trying to impress his absent dad, and it's um they have so much um yeah, and you know there, people like to joke about like you know oh yeah one's from Europe and one's like you know a rich kid and you know one's like they're so different, but it's they have so much um that they they need in each other and I, yeah. I love like watching it. and that that ceremony is so touching too just like from, from Flea's speech and um hugging Jason and that uh I love that thing that James says too about uh you know how this award is for Thin Lizzy and Motorhead and Iron Maiden, and all these bands that deserve to be in here that aren't in here yet it's just a, it was, it's a really great uh, great moment absolutely and I love you know thinking about you know you mentioned their relationship with their
0: fathers which are it's such a defining thing for any human being Yeah, Uh, there was a I don't remember if it was an anniversary there was some kind of like updated some kind of monster that came out a few years back and there was a new commentary track for it and I listened to some of the commentary track and there's a a part where you know James and Lars are watching the infamous glorious uh, delete that scene and you know it gets there and you see it's it's you know Torben and Lars in there and and he's he's telling them to delete that that we all know so well but James asks Lars like contemporaneously as they're watching it together um hey how does that make you feel like how does that make you feel like your dad you know your dad's your dad your dad saying that and Lars totally brushes it off he's like I don't care it doesn't bother me you know that that sort of thing um and it was just, it's such a human moment between the two of them. And it's also interesting because you tend to think of Lars as more open and James is more like closed off and, and kind of tightly wound. And yet in that moment, you hear a very open Hetfield asking a very emotional question. Yeah, and Lars sounds totally closed off and not wanting yeah. to go
1: there. Um, yeah, so it's just moment. really interesting, those dynamics and how they play Lars has said, too, I think he even says in Some Kind of Monster, like, there's nothing worse than when my dad knows my music sucks. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's such a great, and just, like, you know, you know, Lars is, you know, thought of as more open, but, you know, being open with James is, like, such a, that's such a powerful moment and, like, something you have to kind of brush away for a moment and just, uh, yeah. and, you know, James is also kind of pigeonholed as kind of, like, you know, like a tough kind of, like, Robert Mitchum, you know, stoic guy, but he's a cowboy, yeah. <laughs> A lot of emotion, that guy. A lot of, uh, yeah. lot of a lot of lot of feelings in those songs, and you see it. a lot
0: of that in some kind of monster also when he's with his kids. When his kids are young and yeah, very very uh, relatable. Awesome sort of vulnerable side, and I think it's that vulnerability, that raw exposed nerve that's present in their music and in their performances that so many of us connect with. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he he puts himself out there and that's um something that uh you know we can live through that. And that's something that, you know, just countless people and you know I have my chapter about like the the fans all over the world and like you know, just countless people process their pain through that. It's like, well, you know, I can't, you know, I can't express this myself, but you know, this is for me. This thing expresses me. And I uh, and it's just, just what an admirable and what a powerful thing to sit back and look at. Like all so how much uh how much pain he processes for people all over the world.
0: So the book has, has gotten a lot of great press and I've seen that, you know, you've, you've talked to KCRW and, and a lot of uh, esteemed outlets. Has there, you know, what can you tell me about the reaction to it now that it's been out for a minute um, generally? And, and has there been anything that surprised you
1: that that's
0: come about because of the
1: book? You know, um, I guess I've been, uh, you know, it's. a a mind-blowing feeling to have it in stores and have people read it and have people like strangers have questions or thoughts about it and that's (laughs) um but uh, I guess you know you you mentioned that the first thing that um that I thought of was which I didn't um I didn't think of when I was writing this but people been saying that it's great that you can read that this book is by a fan and that didn't seem like a big deal to me because I was like well of course if you read Metallica book you're a fan but then I was thinking like you know in hindsight like a lot of the sort of Metallica books out there are written by like serious professional journalists who have like two or three books come out a year and stuff like that. And I didn't realize that my fandom would show up like that. That it would show up like and make that book that much of a contrast from previous books. I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting that, um, that uh, people saw that fandom there. Um, I've also been touched, I guess, you know, it was a big deal for me to get um Lena Dodds to write my um foreword, who, you know, is a, a big deal for me Mel Ring. I've seen um some people have been saying it's a nice contrast to see the different kinds of metal fandom because her tone is so kind of like intellectual and academic and you know different from my more sort of like conversational tone. And uh that was something that I've been impressed. I've I've liked hearing about. Um I guess uh, another, uh, another reaction just reminded me is that um, it's funny that people are like, uh, you know, hey, that's great. You got a Metallica book, but, you know, it must suck to have to write about Saying Anger and stuff like that. When, you know, the truth is like, it sucks to have to write about Master of Puppets and like Ride the Lightning. It's it's so, I mean, I shouldn't say it sucks. It's, it's an honor. And I, I think I know, know what know. you mean though. Yeah. But it, it's so hard to write about like the perfect records. And in some ways it's easier and some ways more fun to write about the sort of complicated records like Lulu and the stuff. And that was, um, you know, people are like, oh man, you must have to and It's like, no, that's a, like the real challenge is like, you know, what do you say about like the you know, the masterpieces? But, um, but it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun to uh, get in depth with and, you know, write about the less consistent albums too. But uh, I guess the, yeah. there's some reaction. And
0: that's there. when a legacy band, you know, has a, a catalog, right? I mean, what fun is, what fun is a catalog if it's the same record over and over? Yeah, I mean, of course you want, well, want I more mean, records that you love in different ways you know
1: yeah and um you know that's also something to get into is that you know um there's this debate about you know like Metallica or Slayer or Metallica or ACDC you, know, you want to be the band that does one thing well or one thing or different things and sometimes yeah. you know inconsistently and and my take is that you need both and like I, I love knowing that you know um that you know Slayer is going to be good old Slayer, or Motorhead or ACDC. Same, you know, yeah, come those, back. Man, it's going to
0: be what's on the tin, you it's know. No be, exactly,
1: them, right? Yeah. You know, come back. And I also love knowing that Metallica is always going to surprise us. I love knowing that you know, hardwired's Out. What is this going to be like? You know, no, I right. Don't know what to expect, right? And, that's, and then it you know,
0: will always be a discussion point, even amongst people who left the band behind at some point or during some era. Whenever they do something, every everyone in the broader hard rock and metal community has an opinion about it they're all paying attention whereas you can't say the same for even a lot of bands that those folks profess to love I used to say uh, you know back obviously when Motorhead was still active right you could see some guy in a Motorhead shirt and tell him that Motorhead's playing at the House of Blues two blocks away in an hour and he probably would have no idea you know, and still might not even go. <laughs> you know, yeah. still might not be like, "Oh, wow, really, man? Can I still get in?" We'll probably be like, "Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like modern yeah. And You know, yeah. I guess
1: and Metallica is up- not that kind of band. Everybody's very passionately paying attention every step of the way. Every Every album is an event with Metallica. It's like it's like getting a new Kubrick movie. You know, it's like every you know, it's like every album is like you know, it's like big. the The world stops. The metal press yeah. stops. It's like we have to like you know, you know. You know, hardware is coming out. What do we What do we think of it? What What does it sound like? How's it compared to the previous records? Where are they doing with this? What are they saying with it? And it's um, yeah, it stops the world in a way, that becomes like a, uh, you know, conversational point. You know, right about how every you know, every metalhead has a different idea of how to make load and reload one album, and that's a big discussion point. It's like you know, what, what would your load reload mixtape sound like? And just yeah. no. Know- the same answer but and they're it's- never
0: it's never the same answer yeah uh use your illusion one and two never the same answer exactly yeah yeah
1: good comparison and that's yeah. what
0: makes me happy that we have the full bodied versions of both so yeah, we can keep too. playing that game you know I'm, I'm glad i'm glad that stuff wasn't left on the shelf
1: they, they raise questions right they have yeah. so many questions for us yeah so yeah i love that they keep you know giving us more room to explore and more things to question so
0: so i gotta ask you and, and uh forgive me if you've been answering this a lot but again with the uh, the benefit of interviewing you after it's now been out mm-hmm. uh, are you aware of directly or indirectly the band being aware of the
1: book i am not i um i only you know tangentially tried to reach out to them i figured that that probably wouldn't happen and um i didn't i um i know lars is really on top of a uh, press for the band so if anyone has it he does but i have not heard from uh, from them or even from the band. I don't know what the reaction would be, but uh, yeah, I would say th- I would say there's a ninety five percent chance that Lars at least knows it exists.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm just curious. Um, you know, and I and I had this I had this explained to me once. You know, the, this idea of authorized biographies. Right when you see this is authorized. Um, right. I hadn't thought about it this way until someone put it to me this way, but oftentimes that, that, that stamp of authorized means sanitized. And that's not necessarily what you want to read when you're reading about these bands. You don't necessarily want something, and not to say that Metallica would do this, but just in, in general, public figures in general, that you don't necessarily want something that's been through, uh, you know, all of the, uh, publicity arms and legal arms and this and that, and and, and it is presenting only exactly what that person wants to project. You maybe want something that's a little dirtier and grimmier and, and uh, can take a more objective view, I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing I've been saying, you know, in the book press is that, um, you know, in honor of Metallica, I would have to give a, uh, like a, um, like, like an unfiltered look at them, you know, because because Metallica doesn't look at the world that way. Metallica doesn't sugarcoat the world. Metallica's like, Metallica's real. And they're like, this is how things are. And this is the worst of humanity, but we're going to look at it. And if I, you know, sugarcoat the Metallica story, then I couldn't do that. You know, it's, um, I remember actually like leading up to the publication of the book, one of my big things I couldn't figure out was, um, who's going to be on the cover? Like, do I want like the, the Cliff lineup, the Jason lineup or the Robert lineup? And then right when I had to make the decision, like, you know it has to be the Robert lineup. because I don't, people think this is just about the Thrash like Club. Yeah. It's not just the, you know, the, the biggest song record. This is like all Metallica. This is going to be like the full, um, this is going to be as much of the story as we can put here. And this is going to be the good. It's going to be, you know, the bad. It's going to be, um, you know, the important things. I mean, just my, my important things as a fan, but um, but yeah, I don't, I, I think it'd be a disservice to make like a kind of a authorized, and you know, their, their authorized stuff is often great that Back to the Front book about, um, sure. is yeah. awesome. You know, they, um, and, you know, obviously sometimes is an extremely unguarded movie and that's a, uh, it's great that they put that in, out in the world, but, um, yeah, I want to give Metallica, a, a a fan look, but also like a fair look. And I wouldn't be like a, a real fan if I were. Just kind of flaunting over them the whole time and saying, like, you know, everything they right. do is perfect. But, right. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, well, dude, it's been awesome having you on. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. I want to ask you before we wrap up is there anything you can talk about that's percolating? Or, you know, I would imagine, like a lot of creative people, it's mm-hmm. a big, relief and achievement to get the thing out but then you're also already like what's next what am I working on next exactly
1: yeah no I um I was like so glad to get it out but I'm also you know that's true and I I pitched a new book uh within um I started a new book within uh two days of the next one and it's um yeah. the first ever book about body count I'm writing uh, Oh wow nice I'm writing a, and a third book for the you know the 33 and third series yes. um yeah there's an album there's a Metallica one in that but I'm writing a book about body count. I've interviewed. Um, well, I think our mutual friend DX Ferris did the Rain of yes. Blood 33 and a 30. Rain of Blood, which is one of my favorites. Yeah. So um, I've been working on that uh, for months now. I've, I've interviewed um, Henry Rollins and Jella Biafra and Vernon Reed and some more people coming up. But uh, yeah, I'm going to write about uh, that whole controversy. And uh, it's been it's really exciting. And I'm looking forward to that and hopefully more books uh, coming up.
0: That's killer, man. I could put you in touch with some folks who I don't know that it would help you necessarily but I, I know some folks who've worked with them oh that'd be great. In recent years you know like way the the later records um at century media and at sumerian I don't know. oh yeah with like will putney and people like that and um yeah that's, yeah, that's yeah. cool yeah that's a story that that needs a book thanks
1: <laughs> well, i hope so so it's and a- there are
0: a lot of stories that I'm, I'm interested in mining personally too that exist in this kind of nether region where it's not really the old school print publications that are like preserved on microfilm or whatever that you can look up yeah. on library.com. And it's not quite yet the boom of digital media and the internet. So there's this like period of, of rock journalism in particular that that's kind of, I don't know, it might be hyperbole to say it's lost, but it's definitely not as accessible and I think there are stories to be told from those years that yeah, you know definitely. deserve to be put in a book. And I would and I would argue that, that that first body count record
1: is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, and I actually tried to do it with the Metallica book too, where there were quotes from you know old magazines that I had at home, and I was like, you know, that's that's not anywhere online. I had to like go through and dig up stuff from that. But it's yeah. uh yeah, same with body counts. I've been looking through old archives for that, and uh, yeah, hopefully that's uh, 2023.